please open your Bibles to, let's go to uh, Mark 14, 26. Since we just read the words Jesus spoke during the Lord's Supper, and we just took the Lord's Supper, it would be appropriate to see what happens next. We've already preached on this portion of Scripture a couple months ago, but it's a good reminder that after this very solemn ceremony, disciples must have been filled with much confidence, filled with grace. They sang hymns, wonderful time of singing hymns, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. So right after... the this first, this inaugural Lord's Supper, the first thing Jesus tells his disciples is, you will all fall away. Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. These words were echoing in my mind as I took the Lord's Supper this morning. It's such a wonderful time of renewal to confess your sins to God, which we can do anytime, anywhere, thanks be to Jesus Christ, that we can boldly approach the throne of grace, that we have a great high priest in Jesus Christ, that if we confess our sins to him, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, right? 1 John 1, 9. So we don't have to wait until the month where there's five Sundays, or the end of the month in this case. Jesus didn't command how often we should do this. It's at our church we've chosen the last Sunday of the month to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But I was reminded that you do have a special sense, right, during the Lord's Supper, just a special sense of God's grace and His forgiveness and of His presence. It's a beautiful ceremony. God's so designed us and built us that metaphors and symbolism help us remember So much so that uh, the early church, there was often some kind of uh, disagreement about just how much of Jesus was present during the Lord's Supper. Is he actually there? Is it his actual body and blood? Is, Is he kind of there? Is he there in presence? Or are they merely symbols? We teach they're merely symbols. Not to take any gravitas, though, out of the Lord's Supper. It is a holy, solemn, event. And in a very real way, the presence of Christ dwells in us and remembering his death in this way ought to empower you and encourage you in your forgiveness. That you can walk out of here knowing you're forgiven and empowered to go walk in newness of life, walk obedient with the Lord. And yet, let the words we just read remind you that In some way, when we walk out of here, we will all fall away in some way. Not denying Christ in a dramatic way like Peter did, but any time we choose to give in to our sin nature, and we will, we are denying Christ in a sense. We are saying, I know better. 
I know better. In this case, I don't want to listen. I'm justified in my, my sin here. Maybe not all those thoughts go through our mind. But let's not be like Peter and say, Oh, no, not me. Though all may fall away, I will be completely faithful all week or all month till the next Lord's Supper. At the same time, not, let's not say flippantly, Well, of course I'm going to sin. Right? The, the, the correct attitude is one of humility with the expectation that by the power of God's grace and the Holy Spirit living in us, we can, we can say no to sin. But don't kid yourself into thinking you're perfectly 100% sanctified, that you're glorified before heaven. It's not, not the case. And so we're going to look today at five phases of a restored fellowship with Christ. If indeed our sin breaks fellowship with Christ, what is the road back to restored fellowship? And we're going to look at Peter's life, because when last we left our hero, he was weeping bitterly in the courtyard of the high priest. He had denied Jesus three times. In fact, let's turn ahead to Mark 14.66. I introduced you to the concept last week of when we sin, we are judging God's Word. When we sin, we're judging God's Word. So we may not be the Sanhedrin putting God on trial, but in a sense, our sin nature is always putting God on trial. And we are tempted in the garden, our, our our father and mother, Adam and Eve, were tempted to put God on trial. Did God really say an attack on the inerrancy of Scripture, an attack on the perspicuity of Scripture? Really? Did he say that? Is that what he meant? An attack on the infallibility of Scripture? Well, you won't really die. Here's what's really going to happen. So, yeah, okay, God's Word says that, but it's not exactly what it means. And then finally, an attack on the sufficiency of Scripture. You know, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like God and have your eyes open, and you will know good and evil. Then you won't need God's Word. Or, sure, we always need God's Word, but then you'll have something more than God's Word. You'll have your own intellect, your own discernment, your own knowledge, apart from the revelation of God. An attack on the sufficiency of God's Word. And so Peter was told by the living word of God, God incarnate in human flesh, you will deny me three times. And Peter said, no, I won't. I know myself better than you know me. This is Peter, who correctly identified Jesus as, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When Jesus said, do you want to turn away to Peter? Remember when he fed the 5,000 and... He said, you'll need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, metaphorically, of course, but people walked away. And he said, do you want to walk away too? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the word of eternal life. So you would think Peter would understand that when the word of God incarnate tells him something, he can take it to the bank. But this word of God was revealing Peter's greatest weakness, his tragic flaw, and that's where we're most tempted to not want to listen to the Word of God. It's easy to listen to the Word of God when it's 
judging others and exposing the world or when it's promising us great blessing, but not so much when it's revealing that place we don't like to talk about, those secret sins. I think probably anyone who knew Peter well knew he had fear of man issues. Anytime you see this kind of false courage, this braggadociousness, this machismo, this I'll be the first in line to take a bullet for you. Courage is, uh, true courage is not the absence of fear, right? It's being steadfast in the face of fear. Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. Peter's response to God, to Jesus, should have been, Wow, really? What can I do about it? How can I stop it from happening? Help me. He should have already known how weak he was. He'd already failed on other occasions. He had to be rebuked by Jesus on more than one occasion. Remember, right after he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said that he would die at the hands of the Gentiles. And Peter said, I won't let that happen. And Jesus said, rebuked him, get behind me, Satan. Peter was also part of the the group who wanted to know who was going to sit on the left and right hand of Jesus in his kingdom. And he was arguing during the Last Supper who was the greatest. And then Jesus wrapped a towel around his waist and washed their feet. And he said, let me show you what the greatest looks like. So Peter, like all of us, is a slow learner. Jesus told him in the garden, stay awake, watch, so you don't fall into temptation. And Peter, in his self-confidence, didn't think he needed to stay awake. And had to be awakened three times. You know, really, there's three denials before he denies Jesus publicly. And so uh, Peter does deny Jesus three times in front of the servant girl, looking at um, verse 71. Here's the third denial. He began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. And we read in Luke's Gospel that at that moment, Jesus is being led out into the courtyard and makes eye contact with Peter. The holy gaze of God. The scriptures say in Hebrews that the word of God is like a two-edged sword that pierces between joint and marrow. That, That holy, terrible gaze of God. But when you know Him as Savior... It's a gaze that we need, a gaze that pierces right into our heart, past all of our walls we put up, past all of our fig leaves, and goes right to the heart, which is where we need the surgeon, the great physician, to go. You've got to admit you've got cancer before you can be treated, so to speak. Reminded of the man who said, I refuse to go to the doctor. Why? He's just going to tell me everything that's wrong with me. Right? I know what he's going to say. Cut back on dairy and red meat and exercise and 
all that kind of stuff. So as long as I don't go, then I'm okay. Can you trust Jesus to tell you what your problem is? And then can you take ownership of it? It says, Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. I'm going to show you five phases of restored fellowship with Christ. And really, phases is kind of the correct word because sometimes these things happen immediately and sometimes they take time, but um, definitely you'll see these five phases when you've broken fellowship with Christ and, and you need to be restored. By breaking fellowship... I mean, after you are a believer, after you're saved, sinning after you're a believer. You'll recognize some of these phases in your life before you were saved, and they led to your salvation. But I'm addressing mainly believers this morning. What to do when, when you've sinned, and you feel that gaze of Christ that makes you weep. You know, whenever we sin, we've sinned against God, God first. But we also sin against one another. Remember David wrote in Psalm 51, I have sinned against you and you alone, God. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute. You stole Uriah's wife and then had him murdered. Of course, David knows he sinned against them and really against the whole nation Israel because he was the king and their, their head, their example but we realize, must realize that first and foremost, we've sinned against God. As I was contemplating this scripture, I realized that Peter, in one fell swoop, sinned against God and his friend. He sinned against God and Jesus' divinity and let down and betrayed his friend in the most terrible of all ways, to abandon your friend in, in their greatest hour of need. The first phase of restored fellowship with Christ then is realization. You have to come to the realization that you have sinned. You cannot just say, we're all sinners. That's not going to cut it. In fact, we often say that to cover the fact that maybe we don't actually think we've sinned. I challenge you to ask God to show you categorically where you are sinning in specific ways, especially when you have broken fellowship with a friend, a child, a spouse, co-worker. It's not enough just to go to someone and say, I'm sorry. We require our children to actually say what they're sorry for. And you can get a sorry out of someone a lot easier than you can get a specific confession. Sorry for what? You know. I don't know. I know. I want to know if you know. Because the blessing comes after the realization and the confession. 
We sin in specific ways. We need to confess our sins in specific ways. David, writing in Psalm 19, actually says, asks uh, God to forgive him of... Um, I may have just given you the wrong psalm. David did, did write in a psalm to forgive me of secret sins. That is in Psalm 19, near the end. The, the ones I don't even know that, that I committed. But we can't just pray that prayer all the time as if we don't know what our sins are. He says also, forgive me of my presumptuous sins. Those are the sins where you know it's wrong, but you went ahead and did it anyways. Sins of commission, sins you committed, and sins of omission. Things you know you should have done and didn't. The sinner must realize that his version of the truth does not align with God's version. We all have this concept of truth that we live by, and we get upset when things aren't going according to our version of truth. We get unmet expectations. We think we deserve certain things that we really don't. And the Bible is telling us that we need to take our version of truth and move it over and align it with God's truth. And I don't say God's version of truth because His isn't a version. It is the truth. Francis Schaeffer used to call it true truth because he realized that the word truth had been so abused in our postmodern culture, right? Your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, that we can't even use the word truth anymore in America without it actually meaning what it originally meant. Truth is outside of us. It's fixed. God's truth is true truth, the truth. When Paul says in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, conforming your mind, not, right, not into your own image, but into the image of Christ, conforming, transforming your will to God's will. What did we just sing? It's all about you, Jesus. It's not about me, as if you should do things my way. It's like, well, you want God to bless your mess, as we say to rubber stamp your agenda. And then we get mad when things don't turn out well doing it our way. And so this first step is critical. Peter didn't believe God's word when it was verbalized to him that he would deny Jesus three times. That was not his version of truth. That is not who I am. I would never do such a thing. I'm Peter, the rock. But he came to realize in the courtyard of the high priest that his version of truth about his own character was grossly mistaken. I believe that was part of the weeping. He had that aha moment that I am not the man I thought I was. And at this moment, there is a critical moment where you can go one of two ways. You can repent or you can dig in your heels Peter could have said, well, that's not fair. I, you know, I was in the courtyard. I got caught unawares. You know, I didn't have my sword with me. He didn't make excuses, though. 
I use a poker term in counseling. I call it doubling down. You know, when somebody's bluffing in poker and the other person knows they're bluffing and they call them and the other person, instead of just folding, doubles down foolishly. Well, I see your raise and I, you know, I double it. And it's like, a, you fool, you've been caught in your bluff. But out of pride, you, you double down. It's me of a scene in an old TV show where a character lies to his future in-laws and says he can't have dinner at their house because he needs to go to his house in the Hamptons. And they're like, he doesn't have a house in the Hamptons. He's, you know, he's poor. And they say, well, we'd like to see your house someday. And he's like, oh, I'd love to invite you this weekend, but you already have your party. And they're like, you know what? It's been canceled. We'll take the invitation. And uh, he doubles down, and instead of admitting that he's lied, he says, well, get in the car and let's drive. And we do that, sadly, when our sin is revealed and our sin nature has been exposed. Do you repent quickly and say, oh my goodness, that's me? Or do you say, no, 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 wait, 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 that doesn't count. That one doesn't count. Have you ever seen someone who's more upset that they got caught than that they sinned against the Holy God? It's almost as if people are born and we think we're born with a blank slate and as long as we don't mess up, we're perfect and then nobody can judge us, no one can have any expectations of us, nobody can demand anything from us. And then you sin in a gross, obvious, public way. And instead of admitting it, you go, oh no, that's going to be on my whiteboard now. Well, I can't leave that on there. And so you erase it yourself. But it's that cheap whiteboard marker that leaves a ghost impression and everyone can see it. And yet you're still walking around like your whiteboard's clean, and it is so sad, so sad. Because God is so ready to forgive the repentant sinner. Remember when the prodigal son repented? What does the Bible say? He came to his senses. Another way of saying, you know, he had his aha moment. Duh. I'm rolling around in a pigsty and I have a father at home that loves me. What am I doing? I'm not going to hide the fact anymore that I sinned against my father. I'm going to go home and endure the shame that I deserve. And just when he gets to the edge of town, his father comes running to him and kisses him and forgives him and puts a robe on him and gives him a ring and shoes on his feet and kills the fattened calf and has a party. There wasn't a period of mockery and shame. That would be having to work off your own sin. So the second phase is this remorse phase, and this is the tricky part. When you realize you've sinned and you feel remorseful, how do you know it's true remorse that leads to repentance, or it's just that I'm sorry I got caught. Godly remorse will soften the heart. 
easy to see in our children's faces. Have you seen this face before when your child gets caught? They're kind of seething. Jennifer and I, as new believers, filled with lots of love and not much wisdom, invited a young man to to come live with us who had gotten kicked out of his home. Very foolish, I know, having an 18-year-old boy live in your house with your wife and daughter. But we felt sorry for him because we thought his parents had treated him rudely. After three months of living with us, we figured out why his parents had kicked him out of the house. He was a lazy ingrate. Never lifting a finger to help, never saying thank you, never saying how can I be a blessing to you. And when we confronted him on this, he made that face. I just remember it so well. It just stung, but didn't sting in the way that leads to repentance. It wasn't a, oh, wow, has that been me? You know, there was no, man, my mom's been telling me that for my whole life, and now these people that have no reason to lie to me or manipulate me are telling me the same thing. Good news is he eventually did repent, and uh, we haven't kept in touch with him, but I pray and hope he's doing doing well. But I just remember that face. And it's that face where you're like, if I press any harder, I just think I'm going to make it worse. He's not going to crack. The arms crossed. God called Israel this stiff-necked people. When you go to try to teach a young person and you put your hand on their shoulder to teach and they... That. They're sorry they got caught and they're sorry now that this public sin is on their public record. And what's even worse is sometimes they get upset at you and you're like, wait a second, you sinned and I'm in trouble? How does this work? You like it when I sin. It makes you feel better than me. Wow. That's our pride. That's our sin nature. Paul talks about the two kinds of remorse in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10. The Corinthian church was a mess. They needed remorse and repentance. So he writes them a letter designed to expose their sin. And they don't respond too kindly to the first letter. And he writes a second letter, which he calls the sorrowful letter, which we don't have. So 2 Corinthians is actually the third letter he wrote to to the Corinthian church. But he makes reference to this sorrowful letter. And he was wondering if he was too harsh in the sorrowful letter. Because sometimes when you're lovingly trying to help someone repent, you unintentionally make things worse. You know what I'm talking about. You, you push too hard. Sometimes you need to pull someone aside in private and not expose their sins publicly, even though they were sinning publicly. Always better to pull your child aside somewhere privately instead of embarrassing them in front of their friends or their brothers and sisters. I know it's like public sin, 
you know. But once you can get them to repent in private, then the next step would be to come out and apologize publicly. So he says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful. Right, Paul saying, I'm not happy that you're sad. Right, I don't, I don't enjoy that you're sorrowful, but he, he's rejoicing because it was the kind of sorrow that leads to repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. So it's a pure re- repentance without all the... Uh, I hate that I have to do this. Fine, I repent. You know. And it's repentance without regret because when you receive the forgiveness of God, you know that He casts your sins as far as the east is from the west. He remembers them no more. You don't have to continue to, to regret. This kind of repentance leads to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. There's a worldly sorrow, again, that isn't sorry that you've sinned against a holy God and sinned against the people you love, but it's more of a, sorry I got caught. I can't believe I did that. I'm stronger than that. I'm a better person than that. No, you ain't. (laughs) No, I'm not. In my redeemed flesh, in my new spirit that God's put in me. Yes, I am a better person than that, but the old man still hanging around and quite capable of all kinds of atrocities. Often I'll get somebody in my office who's in turmoil because they've committed some kind of gross sin, and yet they're a pretty nice person most the rest of the time. And they're upset that now that's on their record. And so they're in turmoil because they don't know what to do. They're saying, yeah, but that's not me. Ask my coworkers, ask my friends, ask everyone that knows me. But maybe he was incredibly rude to his wife or even abusive. Or she was incredibly rude to her husband or abusive. That's not me. It only happens around him. Right? Well, it was in there. It just took the right person to, as we say, bump the cup so the water can spill out. Nobody poured the water in there. It was in there already. And so what I I end up having to tell them is you have two natures in Christ. You have your old sin nature that will be gone fully when we're glorified in heaven, but you have this new nature. And so you can take ownership of your sin. Yes, I did that. Yes, it was a difficult situation, but that is not an excuse for the way I behaved. Please forgive me. But also, please extend me grace knowing there's a, there's a good guy in there too. I'm doing better. I'm growing. More and more like Jesus every day. Maybe not as fast as you'd like it to happen, but it's happening. And there's no guarantee that the behavior is not going to, uh, to cease. It may happen again. It may happen again. So we don't give people excuses, but we extend grace. And if we see true repentance 
it doesn't mean that you will never sin in that way again. It means it grieves you. You grieve over it. I hear people say, I don't know why I keep doing that. Why do I lose my temper? And we're tempted to say, it's got to be someone else's fault. No, take ownership of it. But by taking ownership of it, you're not telling the world, this is me, this is 100% me, this is all of me. You're You're telling the world, I am a sinner saved by grace with a new nature trapped in an unredeemed flesh. I'm going to blow it sometimes, but please, don't judge me 100% on that. Otherwise, you leave people in a spot where they're tempted to be hypocritical and say, oh, that wasn't me. That wasn't me. I didn't do those things. Yes, you did. We saw it. We have it on tape, whatever. It was public. And what the person is saying is, please don't only think of me in that way. What about the good things I've been doing? Not that your good outweighs the bad, but... A false repentance, though, is when you see someone say, okay, yeah, I did that, I'm sorry, now let's move on, and I demand that you put me back in the place I was before the sin. I want your full trust... I want your full confidence. That's not what it means to forgive and to forget. Forgetting means I'm not going to throw it back in your face, but it doesn't mean, right, that if your children lie to you, that you're going to assume that uh, next time they're not going to lie again. You believe the best, but you've got to kind of keep one eye open. We're good at doing that for others, but can you be suspicious of your own sin? Can you be suspicious of your own motives? I believe Peter learned to become suspicious of his own weaknesses, of his own fallenness. The Peter we see in the New Testament is not the brash overconfident, self-righteous individual we see in the Gospels. And I'll show you that later. What is repentance, though? It's to change your mind or your will, to turn, to do a 180. Let's be clear on the 180 thing, because it's like you watch some TV and there's always some celebrity or athlete who says it. I turned my life around. I did a complete 360. (laughs) Right? You've heard that, right? So you're right back where you started then. A, A change of will. God is right. I was wrong. Repentance always starts with coming to the realization that you are wrong and God is right. Take ownership of your wrong thinking and your wrong doing.
We know not all repentance is real from that 2 Corinthians verse, but we have plenty of examples in the Bible of false repentance. Just to name a couple, King Saul in 1 Samuel 15, you can read up on that. He was ordered by God to destroy the Amalekites, and he spares the king, King Agag, and a lot of the choice cattle and sheep. And Samuel comes along and says, why haven't you obeyed God? And he says, of course I've obeyed God. And Samuel says, "Then what is this bleating of sheep I hear in my ears? Love that line. little sarcasm from the prophet Samuel. And he's like, oh, those sheep. Well, the people said we should keep those for sacrifice, so he blames it on, on the people. And then what about King Agag? Well, he wants to keep him alive, so like other kings, he can gloat that he's defeated this king, when really it's God who defeated King Agag. And Samuel says, you've sinned. The Lord has told me that you will no longer be king. And Saul's devastated over his sin. No, he's devastated that he'll no longer be king and he throws himself on Samuel and grabs his cloak and his cloak tears and rips. And Samuel says, well, there's a great metaphor right there. God has torn the kingdom from your hands today. And Saul says, will you forgive me so I can worship the Lord? And it sounds like true repentance, but it's not because he tells Samuel Please honor me in front of the elders before you go. Make me look good before you leave. Don't leave me humiliated like this. True repentance would have been utter shame, embarrassment, humiliation, a contrite heart, a humbling before the people. It's not what we see. And in the pattern of Saul's life, since that day, just confirms that the repentance wasn't real. A whole life of jealousy, envy, hatred towards David, trying to kill him. Sad, sad life. Judas seems like he may have repented. He goes back to the high priest. We read about that in Matthew 27. Wants to return the money. He says that he's got innocent man's blood on his hands. And they said, well, what's that to us? And they won't take the money back, so he throws the money into the courtyard and then goes and hangs himself. Was it true repentance? Well, Jesus called Judas the son of perdition. Perdition being judgment in hell. We're told in the scriptures that he did not truly repent. The suicide was no indication of false repentance. Don't assume that suicide means somebody is damned. Please don't make that mistake. That is not uh, what the Bible teaches. It's taught in other places in Christianity, but it's not taught biblically. It may be evidence that he didn't repent. You see the difference? It's not the proof that he didn't repent. I think it is evidence that he didn't repent for this reason. I believe Judas loved money and prestige and power. He stole from the apostles' money bag. 
I believe he realized that if I follow Jesus, that's my ticket to prestige and power and money. And then when Jesus made it clear that, no, that is not what it means to follow me, Judas was devastated because he's now alienated himself from the power brokers, the high priests, the Sanhedrin. So he goes back to them and says, hey, I can tell you where Jesus is. He's trying to get back on their good side. And they say, okay, well, let us know and we'll pay you. And they pay him and he brings the money back, thinking that now maybe the Sanhedrin will take Judas in for betraying Jesus. And they don't want to have anything to do with him. They're like, we may be dirty dogs, but we're not that dirty. Now Judas is stuck in no man's land. You see, Judas's version of truth was, this is what is the good life. Money, power, prestige, influence. And he hitched his cart to Jesus, thinking that's where it was going to take him. When it turned out otherwise, he tried to hitch his cart back to the Sanhedrin, and they weren't going to take him. What does he have left now? Nothing. Life is over. Might as well kill myself. And yet, sadly, there could have been life for him. True life, abundant life, forgiveness, repentance and forgiveness and eternal life. If he had been listening to his teacher all those years, he would have known this. He hardened his heart all the way to killing himself because that was his version of truth. It's over for me. Jesus isn't going to deliver and the Sanhedrin's not going to take me in. I've got nothing left to live for. Now all I have is this reputation for betraying an innocent man. And he's trying to get that reputation away from him, but he can't. He did it. But he doesn't want to take ownership of it And he asks the Sanhedrin to forgive him and kind of exonerate his name. And they're like, we can't do that. You did it. So he's not upset that he betrayed Jesus. He's upset that he got caught. Yeah, that it's not going to deliver what he thought it was going to do. It was a gamble. Yes, it's a horrible thing I'm going to do, but it'll be worth it on the other side. And sin never delivers, right? Never delivers what it promises. A little temporary gratification and then the weight of guilt and condemnation and shame. By the way, when we hear somebody repent, we should believe the best. We should hope that it's true repentance. And until we have a lot of evidence otherwise, run with it as true repentance. I encourage and foster and cultivate any step in the right direction in my own home. But, like President Reagan once said, trust but verify, right? (laughs) The sin nature is so strong and so insidious, it has a million ways to kind of find a loophole, to repent but not really repent. True repentance, you'll see an attitude of humility and contrition. 
with an eagerness to change the mind and, and change your behavior. But that, that humility and contrition is what we're looking for. You know, I don't, I don't deserve your respect. If you give me any respect, it's not anything that I would deserve. I'm so sorry for what I did. And yet we can also say this, right? I don't deserve any respect. Well, now you're fishing for pity. Oh, no, no, don't beat yourself up like that. That's not true repentance. But it sounded like it. It was the same words. So, have a heart that hopes and believes the best. 1 Corinthians 13, loves, love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I hate to accuse somebody of false repentance and judge the motive of their heart when it was really true repentance. What does true repentance look like? King David, when he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. There's that acknowledgement that God's word is pure and true. Throwing himself on God's mercy. If God declares me cleansed and forgiven, then I'm cleansed and forgiven. How can a man after God's own heart steal another man's wife and kill her husband? Well, it was his sin nature that did that. The part of David that was a man after God's own heart was this integrity to take ownership to be humble and contrite. In Isaiah it says, God looks to and fro over the earth. He's gazing over the earth and he's looking for a contrite heart. Peter, I believe, truly repented. Of course he truly repented. The Bible tells us he did. But I believe in John 21, 5, 7, when we see Jesus restore Peter, you get a picture of what true repentance looks like. He's out fishing again. Humbly fishing. Not out exalting himself. Jesus comes along the shore. They don't know it's Jesus. He says, children, you don't have any fish, do you? They answered, no. He said, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. So they did, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. It's got Jesus written all over it right there, right? Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, John, said to Peter, It's the Lord. And Simon Peter heard it was the Lord and put on his outer garment, and he threw himself into the sea to, to swim. This man loved Jesus, that's the difference between Judas and Peter. Peter loved Jesus. It's love that will drive us to true 
repentance. Saul had no love for God, only love of himself. David loved the Lord. Judas loved himself. Peter loved Jesus. Oh, does Peter love himself? Well, sure, we all do. But he's learning to love Jesus more. And so Jesus restores him, which is the fourth phase. The repentance phase is the hardest part. When you truly repent, that restoration comes immediately through God's forgiveness. Now, restoring you to your position or your ministry or your office or to full trust in your house may take time. That's normal and it is right. We have no right when we sin against someone to demand that they restore us back to exactly the same level of trust and respect. We can, though, expect that when they forgive us, they will not bring it up again to beat us over the head with it. They will not talk to other people about our sin once they forget. Can you believe what she did? Can you believe? You know, no, that's over. If you've truly forgiven, then it's over. You don't talk about that anymore. However, if there's a pattern of a certain kind of sin in your life to demand someone give you the keys to the Corvette, so to speak, is wrong and foolish. So, Jesus restores Peter right there on the shore. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, then tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. There's the right answer. You know my heart better than I do. I know deep down I love you, but if you acknowledge that I love you, then I'll really know I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep, restoring him three times, three denials, three restorations. It's a beautiful moment in Scripture. And then restores Peter to this, this very special, prominent place among the apostles. Peter learned to put his full trust in God's word and not his own opinion. He learned to be suspicious of his own confidence in himself. He learned to be suspicious of his own ideas. First time Peter gets a chance to preach, he delivers this powerful sermon. Powerful sermon out in front of the temple. And it's just saturated in Scripture. A beautiful exegesis of the Scriptures. Textbook. And he gets to the end of the sermon and he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. It's great boldness now. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent. He's gotten, gotten it. Repent. Turn. 
You can hear in his words, like me, repent like I did. And each of you will be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. I love that line at the end. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Peter even realized it was Jesus who called Peter to himself. In Acts 5, he gets arrested, brought before the council, and they tell him, you need to stop preaching the name of Jesus. This is a guy who's got major fear of man issues, but he's learning not to, to fear the Lord, to put no confidence in himself and put confidence in the word of God. The high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. It's a fully restored man back to ministry, ministering with boldness. Not boldness in his own flesh, in his own confidence, in his own wisdom, in his own abilities. Boldness that if God is for him, who can be against him? Right? Boldness that I'm a forgiven man, and so can you be forgiven. And yet there's a fifth phase Just when we think we've got things licked, (laughs) our fatal flaw comes back when we least expect it. You've got to be suspicious and not let your victory in Christ activate your pride to where you think, okay, Jesus, I got it. Thank you for getting me this far. I got it now. Peter ends up caving in front of Jews who insist that even Gentile believers need to keep the Mosaic law, especially all the uh, ceremonial law and the hand-washing laws. So when they're not around, Peter would eat with Gentiles, no problem. And then when they came to eat with them, Peter would leave the Gentile table and go eat at the Jewish table and separate himself from the Gentiles. And Paul has to call him out on this. Now, the Peter of old would not have liked being rebuked by Paul, Saul of Tarsus, Christian hunter, Pharisee of Pharisees. And yet this new, humble version of Peter, Paul confronts him and Peter listens to the point when they go back to the Jerusalem council to decide on whether or not Gentiles should have to obey the Jewish ceremonial laws, guess who gives the keynote address about not forcing Gentiles to conform to old Jewish ceremonial laws? It's Peter. So he gets rebuked by Paul, and he's like, you're right, I got it. We're going to go back to the Jerusalem council, and he gives... This great testimony, you can read it in Acts 15, 7, 11. But I want to close 
the end of his life. Peter writes two epistles nearing the end of his ministry and his life. And in 1 Peter 1, he says to his people, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the Word that was preached to you. There's a repentant, restored man who's aligned his will to God's, aligned his truth to God's truth, who puts his trust only in the Word of God and not in the ideas of man. This is Peter, the man who once mistook pride and self-confidence for wisdom and courage. Yet he folded like a cheap lawn chair under the pressure of a lowly slave girl. In his pride, he didn't listen to the Word of God when Jesus told him that he would deny Christ. He said, no, I know my character better than you. Jesus. And yet Peter wept over his sin. He knew he had denied the Son of God and betrayed his friend whom he loved. His godly remorse led to true repentance. And he conformed his will to God's will. And Jesus forgave him and granted him full restoration. And Peter learned to be suspicious of his own confidence and his own ideas. Instead, he put his full trust in the Word of God and was even humble enough to allow other disciples, other friends, other brothers to call him out. Say, Peter, we see something. You're doing it again. You're doing it. Gosh, don't you hate being told you're doing it again? But Peter said, you're right. I'm doing it again. Fear of man came back. The man who thought he was worthy to disagree with Jesus humbled himself to the point of realizing that he wasn't even worthy to die like Jesus. Church history tells us that Peter insisted he be crucified upside down because Christ was most exalted on the cross. Peter did not want to exalt himself. He had learned to be humble and lowly. I ask you, my brothers and sisters, do you trust the Word of God more than yourself? That's a tough one. Think about it this week. Do you trust the Word of God more than you trust yourself? Do you trust the Word of God's evaluation of your soul more than your self-evaluation? Are you suspicious of your own flesh? Do you readily admit when you're wrong? And are you grieved when you sin and not just sad that Man, I did it again. Now I owe everybody an apology. Do you believe that you have blind spots? Or do you say, well, I don't see any. Of course you don't. They're blind spots. Do you ask other people, help me? What do you see that I don't see? Again, are you willing to stand on the Word of God so much so that you can say with Peter, all men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but this word stands forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.